Hey folks, the Supreme Court heard oral argument in a pair of challenges to SB 8, the Texas law that bans abortions once a fetal heartbeat can be detected at around six weeks of gestation. There's also big news about Facebook this week. A consortium of news organizations has published a series of reports called the Facebook Papers, which reveal damaging information from internal company documents. The documents show, among other things, that Facebook ignored the spread of misinformation and conspiracy theories relating to the 2020 election and QAnon, that it refused to share with policymakers its trove of research on COVID-19 vaccine information, and Instagram's harmful impact on teenagers. Joyce Vance and I discuss all of this and more on the Cafe Insider podcast. Today, we're sharing a clip from the episode with listeners of Stay Tuned. To hear our full conversation and access all other Cafe Insider content, try the membership free for two weeks. You can do that at cafe.com slash insider. That's cafe.com slash insider. We look forward to having you as part of the insider community. So it's November, Joyce, and if it's November, it means the Supreme Court on the first day of November, which was yesterday, addressed this case we've been talking about. Well, actually two cases, two distinct cases, overlapping issues. The abortion law in Texas, SB 8, the vigilante abortion law, and a little surprising, there was a lengthy oral argument about an hour and a half on the one case, an hour and a half on the other case. Do you want to remind people what we're talking about? So this is the litigation over Texas's SB 8. And our listeners, I think, will recall the tortured procedural history here. So I'll just skim it a little bit. Abortion providers sued over Texas's anti-abortion law that essentially ended abortion in Texas for uh, women at a very early stage. And the Supreme Court ultimately declined to enjoin that law while its constitutionality was being litigated. In other words, the law goes into effect. DOJ files a lawsuit behind the providers, and the district judge enjoins the law in that case. But the Fifth Circuit very quickly terminates that injunction. And the Supreme Court, we believe, is going to go along, or at least I did. I thought the Supreme Court would go along with the Fifth Circuit. But there was this quick setting for oral argument yesterday on both cases, and the outcome wasn't exactly what I had thought it would be. Yeah, so we were very pessimistic. I think a lot of people were very pessimistic because the fact that the Supreme Court heard the case earlier and declined to enjoin the law or enjoin enforcement of the law, meaning stop the law, the fact that they didn't do that, even though a constitutional right was being abridged, a clear constitutional right was being abridged, led us to be pessimistic about what would happen. Now, the oral argument suggests otherwise, and you never know, maybe we should talk about this for a moment, you know, how is it that we know and predict what the Supreme Court will do? Sometimes it's the case that justices ask tough questions and play devil's advocate, and they don't really have the point of view that they're putting forward in their questioning because they're trying to understand the parameters of the argument. But here, do you agree, I think a lot of people agree, that the three liberals on the Supreme Court, plus John Roberts, who was on the liberal side the last time around, plus perhaps Amy Coney Barrett and Brett Kavanaugh, all have a lot of concerns about the law. Do you think this was an an exercise in being devil's advocate, or this really shows the views that they have? So Brett Kavanaugh was the one I was the least firm about, but I think even he will ultimately 
vote to enjoin the law. And it's important to say that this is not about whether or not the law is constitutional, whether the right to abortion will survive. This is about whether the law should be enjoined while these proceedings are ongoing. Like you, Preet, I think it's really dangerous to read too much into Supreme Court justices' questions in oral argument because sometimes they push really hard to try to fully explore the dimensions of an argument that they don't intend to support. But here I I took it a little bit differently. You know, you and I had talked a little bit about my notion that perhaps the Supreme Court was somewhat responsive to the mood in the country. We know that 70% of Americans roughly favor having abortion remain legal. That's likely not where this court is headed, and they'll take that issue up in the Mississippi case, Dobbs, in December. But on this issue, this case was about whether or not the rule of law still matters in this country, whether courts can review state laws for constitutionality. And on that basis, it felt to me like at least Justice Barrett and likely Justice Kavanaugh were willing to join the majority, previously the minority, and say that this Texas law, which is designed to circumvent judicial review, it denies a clear constitutional right, and it makes sure that there's no mechanism for people to review that pre-enforcement, they seem to have come around to the view that the rule of law still needs to matter if they want to go on being justices on, on what's called the Supreme Court in this country. By the way, you know, my view is it is fully logical for a conservative justice who doesn't like Roe, doesn't like abortion, wants to restrict reproductive rights, to still be against SB 8 in Texas. And that's because of the way the Texas law goes about its its enforcement mechanism, as we've discussed before. Basically, a bounty is paid to any private citizen who wants to sue someone who engages in a lawful, constitutionally protected action, in this case, abortion. And no matter what your views are, there are going to be amendments to the Constitution and rights in the Constitution that you support and others maybe you feel less strongly about. And you may not feel strongly about abortion rights, but you may feel strongly about the right to bear arms or the First Amendment or some other you know, individually protected right in the Constitution. And if that is so, you must worry, as the justices suggested in an oral argument, they might have such worries, that if this mechanism is approved and sanctioned and blessed by the Supreme Court, then what is to prevent folks from doing the same thing with respect to something else. And the, and the example that comes up most often and came up yesterday is the Second Amendment. What's to prevent a, a liberal state legislature in a blue state from saying, hey, gun ownership, we can police that by you know giving bounties to people to decide they want to sue someone who's possessed a gun or used a gun in a way that's fully consistent with how you know the court has interpreted the Second Amendment before under Heller and other cases that's a bad thing. And, you know, Kagan, Justice Kagan specifically said, if we accept Texas's position, quote, we would be inviting states, all 50 of them, to try to nullify the law this court has laid down. Yeah, I think this is the floodgates argument. If what Texas did here passes muster, then who's to say that other states can't write laws that are specifically designed to avoid judicial review. So I think this is very interesting when you consider the fact that at 49, Amy Coney Barrett is the youngest justice on the Supreme Court. She is going to be around for a long time. And I think that she's fully cognizant of the fact that today's conservative majority on the court may not be what the court looks like for her entire tenure. 
And she wants to make sure that this can't swing back around. She, in essence, is doing what we want judges and justices to do. She is thinking not about the issue at stake, abortion. She is thinking about the rule of law and how it should work, why we have judicial review in this country, which is to protect rights without regard to what they are. And she asks this really interesting question. She suggests that because of the way that the Texas law is written, clinics can't fully vindicate their constitutional rights in court. And what she means by that is, for one thing, there's no mechanism, as Texas sees it, for pre-enforcement review of this law. But even if you happen to be a person who's defending yourself against one of the lawsuits that the state statute authorizes, you can only raise your own defenses, which the statute limits, and you cannot assert the constitutional right that women have to abortion under existing law to defend your conduct. So Justice Barrett, I think, sees the future and doesn't want the future to look the way Texas's SB 8 looks for rights she might care more about, like gun rights and particularly religious rights. So from the perspective of somebody who cares about reproductive rights, does that make Amy Coney Barrett more or less dangerous in the long run? You know, I think at least for yesterday, it made her someone who was willing to think about prudential concerns about how judicial review works and whether we're going to have viable judicial review in this country or whether some geniuses like the authors of the uh, Texas statute can circumvent it. You say some geniuses because that's what Justice Kagan called them, right? (laughs) In a notable line from oral argument. And the fact that after all these many years, some geniuses came up with a way to evade the commands of that decision, as well as the command that the even broader principle that states are not to nullify federal constitutional rights— And to say, oh, we've never seen this before, so we can't do anything about it. I guess I just don't understand the argument. You know, it was a wonderful moment when she referred to some geniuses, the folks who thought that they were the smartest guys in the room when they wrote (laughs) the Texas statute. And then one of those geniuses, Jonathan Mitchell, had to argue his amicus brief in front of the court. And it was not a memorable argument. The rest of the argument was highly memorable. He was not. Do you think he was flattered by being called a genius? You know, if he was, then he didn't hear Justice <laughs> Kagan's clear insinuation. But, you know, we, I suspect, and of course, my predictions about the court have recently been very wrong, but I still think that we will not be substantively as pleased with Justice Barrett's position in, in Dobbs, the case that we'll look at Roe versus Wade and whether abortion rights continue as, as they exist today. But there's process and there's substance when you think about the law, and it's important to have fair, impartial processes. It's important to have judicial review and to not let states surreptitiously and disingenuously avoid it. So at least for yesterday, she was a champion for the rule of law. Can I revisit a theme that we've talked about week after week, because I think it's important in this context and other contexts, and played out in part at the oral argument yesterday, and that is again and again and again, people on one side of an issue, a legal issue, a constitutional issue, or a political issue, take the position that the thing that is being asked for is unprecedented, is radical, hasn't been done before. And that may be technically correct, but they fail to appreciate that the thing that's being asked for 
is unprecedented because the thing that it is in reaction to is itself unprecedented, right? So Gorsuch was sort of in this theme asking the, the new Solicitor General, Elizabeth Prelogger, and he's asking her, Are you aware of a, of a precedent that permits an injunction against all persons in the country, the world, the cosmos who bring suit? No, Justice Gorsuch. So Our injunction doesn't do that either. Uh, but you said it against anyone who brings suit, right? So I, I did include that in my limitation. Am I missing something? Uh, just to be clear, and I, I'm sorry if I wasn't clear about this before, we understand the injunction only to bind those individuals who choose to who file suit. suit. And yeah, so that, at question. that point, and, they and would I'm be identifiable. I'm asking you, counsel, are you aware of any other example of such, a, such an injunction? With that specific term, I, I can't cite one to you. Again, Not in the history of the United this, States. You can't, you can't identify one for us, right? In the history of the United States, no state has done what Texas has done here. So, you know, whether you're talking about issuing of subpoenas, whether you're talking about COVID-related restrictions, the things that are being asked for are only extreme if you're not looking at the context, if you're not looking at the things that they're in response to. And I, I find it intellectually dishonest for people again and again and again, only to focus on the remediation that's being asked for and how unprecedented that is without acknowledging the reason for it. Do you agree with that? I do. And I think the brand new Solicitor General look, I can't imagine arguing a Supreme Court case if I had six months to prepare. She had, what, 10 days of formal notice from the time of her confirmation. And she did really an impeccable job in oral argument, in large part because of this issue that you're highlighting, where she's pushed and some of the conservative justices repeatedly try to get her to concede that the relief that she's requesting is unwarranted and goes too far, particularly efforts that would enjoin state court judges. And she sticks to the theme, saying the reason this case is so novel, the reason that the relief is so novel is because the situation is unprecedented. And, and something that struck me listening to her, Preet, was it feels like so many commentators have struggled to make the point that this statute, this law that Texas adopted, is just so, um, you know, in the language of my people, it's just meshuggas, right? I mean, you, you can't deputize private citizens all across the country to go out and enforce your unconstitutional law. Just the hubris of even attempting that is absolutely ludicrous. And she, in a polite, dignified, but very firm way, made that argument and essentially said an unusual law requires unusual measures to adapt to it. And by the way, justices, if you're not willing to give the United States relief in this case, then you can kiss the rule of law goodbye. I guess the question people will have is, well, what happened here? In the initial Supreme Court case, when they were dealing with it on an interim basis and deciding whether to keep it in place or not, do you think that justices like Barrett and Kavanaugh had a different view and were more open to SB8 before and they changed their mind? Or it just seems a little bit odd. Where I feel comfortable predicting is I think that they would be okay. Thanks for listening. To hear the full episode, head to cafe.com slash insider and try out the membership free for two weeks. That's cafe.com slash insider. To the many of you who have chosen to join the Insider community, thank you for supporting our work.